This is what I don't get. This is the biggest deal you are ever going to have done in your life for most founders. Even raising 300k at the, the, the first step. Have you ever sold anything for 300k before? Probably not. Yet you're asking someone to buy your shares. That's the product you're selling. And you're asking them to pay 300k for it. Yet you feel like you should be able to just sort of throw a pitch deck together on, on Canva and spam email a load of rich people and they'll go, oh, it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, here's 300k. What? No, like, go away. Hello and welcome to Polyweb. I'm your host, Sara Landi Tortoli, and my guest today is James Church, co-founder and CEO of Robot Mascot, an investment readiness agency, and author of the best-selling book, Investable Entrepreneurs. This conversation is a real masterclass in the world of startup investing covering topics among many others such as how to get the right investors and how to spot the red flags, how to write the perfect pitch deck and the secret to convince investors to bet on your startup. So please enjoy this conversation with James Church. So James, I am entering this conversation being a sort of a masterclass for both aspiring entrepreneurs but also maybe like entrepreneurs that are already in the trenches right and are actively looking to raise funds which is not the mm-hmm. easiest considering the market uh, situation that we're in at the moment but let's start maybe with uh, the aspiring entrepreneurs right? So as an aspiring entrepreneur, uh, and uh, this is my first startup, uh, no one ever taught me in school, uh, in university, is, uh, how should I raise funds? Uh, so what should I know about uh, startup investing? Where would I start? Yeah, wow, that's a big question. I think the first key principle any entrepreneur needs to understand is that great ideas don't raise investment. This is not about your idea. A lot of founders focus all their time, effort, energy, talking about how brilliant their idea is. And of course, that's important. But what's more important is being able to showcase that you're the type of founder that has a strategic plan, is able to execute on that idea, can turn that idea into reality. If you think of all the best entrepreneurs in the world, the one thing they've got in common is that they've been able to make their vision a reality. Whether that means they bring in a team of people better than them executing on stuff and they're just the visionary and everyone follows them on their on that in that into that vision they enroll them into that vision and they get incredible people to come and make it a reality or whether they're they're quite technical and they're able to do a lot of stuff for themselves either way they've had an idea but they've been able to execute it we can all have great ideas those great ideas don't necessarily succeed without someone who can make it happen So so that's the first thing to get out of that comfort zone of this idea is so brilliant. Someone's bound to give me loads of money for it. Investment's not a right because you had a great idea. It's something you have to earn and, and you can earn it by, by sitting down and thinking, right, what's my strategic plan? What are my stepping stones from getting from where I am now to the next point in my journey? And what are the longer term plans from there? So it could be I've just had an idea. So what do I need to do to get this to market? to get my first customers. What are the stepping stones there? What's the strategic plan over the next 12 to 18 months? Once you understand that, that's what you pitch to the investors. I need this funding to deliver this strategic plan so that we're on the path to creating this big vision. 
And after that, we're going to do X, Y, and Z along that path over the next five years to really realize this big vision that I have for, for my idea. And I think if you can get out of that mindset of this idea is great, someone's bound to invest in it, you, you've got a, instantly got yourself um, a higher chance of, of raising investment. Yeah, absolutely. So ideas are cheap, especially these days. I mean, ideas can be generated by a bot, right? So ideas are cheap these That's days. It. What what counts is the execution, or if you cannot execute without the funds, is how do you plan at least to execute, yeah. right? Yeah. So as, as much and, evidence as you can, get, get this as far as you can without any money at all and show that you can make stuff happen and then start asking for money to, to level, level it up, make it better, make it bigger, take it further. Okay. So in jargon, mm-hmm. this is called uh, bootstrapping, which means uh, uh, founding uh, yourself, your own idea and going uh, into execution mode as far as you can uh, without uh, any external help uh, uh, in terms of money. Okay, so without mm. raising external funds, right? But let's assume that I am uh, out of the bootstrapping phase. So I have kind of some traction, you know, and I need now to start raising money and, you know, go out there, right? And start pitching. What shall I know? Because like there are so many variables that as a founder, I should take it under consideration. The first one being, uh, and maybe we can address those in orders, is uh, mm-hmm. how does the investment word actually work, uh, right? Because there, there is a Series A, Series B, you know, Series C, like, you know, so how does it work? How much can I expect, therefore, to raise, right, as a first-time mm-hmm. founder? So it's a really important point because I think a lot of, a lot of founders – kind of go down the route of raising as much as they possibly can having big asks uh because their idea is so great and they need five million to to make this happen over the next three years no one's going to be risking five million of uh, of their capital on you at an early stage if you're just out of that bootstrapping phase and also it's not good for you because if you're if you're saying i'm going to raise five million you've somehow got to value your company and if you want to sell maybe 20 percent of your company you're kind of having to say that your your valuations may be what 25 30 million and you just can't sustain that kind of seriously go to an investor and say my idea at this stage is worth 25 30 million so you kind of need to to break this down and if you can break this down into easily manageable chunks it de-risks the investment opportunity to the investor because they're saying look take this small amount Prove a few key milestones with it. And if you achieve that, we'll invest some more. And if you achieve those milestones, we'll invest some more. And you might end up raising 5 million over a three-year period, but you break it down into more manageable chunks. So these become known as rounds. And investment rounds typically follow the uh, process of pre-seed, seed, Series A, Series B, Series C, and so on. So pre-seed is where you would go after your bootstrapping phase. And you'd say, right, I need, I've proven the concept. I've got enough evidence to reassure myself that 
I feel comfortable asking someone else to risk their kid's inheritance on my idea. And I have enough evidence reassuring myself that if I was to quit my job, I'm onto a good thing. So once you feel like you're in that position, you've probably got enough evidence and validation to to go and raise pre-seed. And this could be surveys, focus groups. It could be you've made a, a clickable prototype and you've tested it in the market. You've done something to test the test the demand. Now you're raising your pre-seed round, and that's usually between 200 to 400k. Could be as much as a million. I was looking at data on this for the for the last two months, and the average pre-seed round works out at about one million. But there's some big curveballs in there. There's some it's four or five companies that have raised about five million pre-seed. Take those out of the equation and the average becomes 300K. So pre-seed, we're looking at 300K investment into the business to build the first version of the product and sign up our first customers. And by the end of that pre-seed money, we want to ideally be in a position where we have some paying customers. It might only be a couple of grand a month, but we've got some paying customers for this product. That unlocks the next round of investment, which is your seed round. And the average there is about 2 million. One to 2 million is, is really the average for a, for a seed round. But it depends how much you've been able to achieve with your pre-seed as to how much you can raise here. We've had some clients raise a 40 million pound seed round, which is just insane. But typically one to 2 million seed round. You use that money to get yourself to about to to scale the business up, improve the product, improve the marketing and sales and get your business from a few grand a month to about 80 grand a month. Because when you get to 80 grand a month, you're effectively doing a million pounds a year or a million dollars a year or a million euros a year. doesn't matter what currency. It's just that the million is, is the important number. Right. And that unlocks that unlocks your series A round. Once you hit once you're starting to hit 80K a month or a million a year. Suddenly, VCs are interested, later stage investors are interested, and they're willing to back you at that stage to go from maybe 1 million to 10 million a year. And you might be able to raise 5 million to go and achieve that. And so on and so on and so on. So so by breaking that down into a 300k round, a 1.5 million round, and maybe a 3 million round, you're still raising about the 5 million but you're doing it in steps that make it more palatable to the investor to de-risk it. But it also means that you as a business are able to retain more equity because raising 5 million in one go means that the chances are you're going to need to give over 50% of the company away because you can't sustain a valuation much more than that with a concept. But if you break it down and say, I'm raising 300K for say 20% in my pre-seed round, I'm then going to raise 1.5 million for say 15% in my seed round. And then I'm going to go raise 30 million, uh, 3 million, sorry, in my series A round for maybe 10% this time. Overall, I've sold what 45% of the company. So I'm still majority shareholder. I still own more than 50% of the company, but I've brought in 5 million. I've revalued the business at every round because I've executed on something. So I've increased my valuation and I can raise more money by selling less uh, and sell less equity each time. Does that make sense? Yeah. That that's kind of the journey we need to go okay, on. Okay, it does. Which I want to have a follow up question before before we will move on. It seems to me that one key aspect uh, it's the ability to correctly evaluate what's your company worth, right? Uh, to be able to start uh, and pitch investors. Uh, 
So if you if you're already advanced in your journey and you already have you know revenues, uh, then it's uh, revenues are not at all there is to make an evaluation, but they are certainly a good starting point to you know assess how much uh, is your company worth. But when you're just starting out and and really what you have is uh, maybe like a validated prototype uh, you know or 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 a little more how shall you evaluate your company yeah it's a really tricky one and like i say you you can't really use a multiple of revenues because you haven't got revenues and that that's suitable for when you're exiting the company you do a multiple of revenue or a multiple of profit but when you're a startup you can use a few different methods so when we do it for clients we use five different valuation methods and we kind of do a weighted average on each one to try and figure out what a sensible market valuation might be so we use two discounted cash flow forecast methods and they're basically looking at the future projections of your business and discount using that to value the company at so in based on the projections in 3 or 4 years time if we apply multiple to those those revenues or those profits here's what the company would be worth. And then we discount it back to today's value, basically by putting in things like risk rate, failure rate, various different multiples to discount it back to today. That's great, but they're not that reliable because forecasts are forecasts, right? They're, they're projections of the future. They're not really based on anything concrete so that it's, it gives you a nice, healthy valuation, but but they're treated with some skepticism by investors. The more early stage the business, the less reliable those types of valuations. But they're worth having a look at and they're worth looking uh, looking to do. You then have two, two qualitative approaches that we use, which are, which are checklist and scorecard method. So you can Google this. I think they come under different names as well. But basically, they're assessing various parts of the business. So you would do some research and say, valuations for my sector range between X and Y. So at an early stage, pre-seed funding round for businesses in my sector, the valuations seem to range between, say, two and five million, with the average being, say, three and a half. So I'm probably somewhere in that range. I've just got to figure out where. So what you can do is you can split your business up across the things that investors really care about. So let's say the maximum valuation here that someone is achieving in your sector is 5 million at an early at a pre-concept or a pre-product stage, a concept stage. You can say, well, I'm going to split the business into five areas, maybe the strength of my team, the strength of my IP, the size of the market, the amount of funding required to, gen- to get to profitability. Um, and I don't know, uh, something else. <laughs> I can't remember what the fifth one is. Um, but you have these five areas of the business and you can say, well, each one of those is worth 1 million. And if I get a hundred percent score in each one of those five areas, if I'm the best on the planet in all five of those areas, I can command that top end five million valuation. If I'm not, I need to be less. So we can say, look, team is a simple one to explain. If the if the co-founding team is Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Richard Branson, they're probably going to score a hundred out of a hundred. If the co-founding team is a sole founder who's an eighteen year old who's quit university to start a startup with no life or business experience they're probably going to be on the lower end of the score but if they've got three or four strategic advisors who have each made five exits they might be slightly higher up the score but you're somewhere between one and a hundred and you need to plot yourself realistically if you look at it from an investor's perspective and say based on all startups i'm looking at 
this is where I think I'd rank you. And if you do that for each of those things, you can then get an idea of what your valuation might be. So that's kind of a scorecard or a checklist approach. And that's really useful for early stage startups because it uses a bit of big data and a bit of research, but also an observation of where you feel you sit across each of these five categories. Obviously, that's better done by a third party who can be purely take the emotional out because you're going to go, I'm 100 out of 100. Like my team is awesome. Like I'm definitely like up there with Elon Musk, right? So you have to try and be objective and not get carried away in the emotion, but you can use those those sorts of methods as well. Okay, interesting. So this is for the evaluation part and we covered the, the aspect of how fundraising works, right? And what can I expect out of it in you know, in the various steps of the journey from pre-seed to, well, possibly series C or D or exit, right? Then like the second aspect that I will be curious as a first-time founder is, uh, okay, I understand now how the mechanics uh, work. How do I select the right investors uh, to pitch even before I craft a pitch, if that makes sense? Or should you do the other way around? Yeah, I think there's only so many hours in the day. So you've got one of two choices is to focus focus first on building some, trying to reach out and build relationships with investors with a view to saying, look, I've got this concept. Maybe it's worth a chat. We're planning on raising investment probably in the next 12 to 18 months and just sort of build up a relationship sort of really early doors. And when you're in that bootstrapping phase, start networking, start going to those sort of funding events, start knowing that you're going to need to do that in the next 12 months. And then you can kind of build up a bit of a waiting list of investors who are ready to pitch to you that you've already built relationships with. So that can work really well. And then in the meantime, you can you can kind of be preparing the assets and they go, look, are you raising investment? You said, you, you know, you said you were, yeah, yeah, we're still kind of crafting everything. We're still getting data in place. We don't want to go too soon because we want to make sure that it's a it's a really solid uh, proposition before we start taking it to market and that builds loads of respect because you're not just after their money you're kind of saying we're only going to ask you to invest when we feel comfortable we've got the data to back up this is worth moving forward with so you could do it that way and then build out your pitch materials and then arrange the pitches most founders get to a point and they go i need to raise some money where do i find investors and they haven't got time to build those relationships so then you build out the pitch deck build out the financials and the valuation and all those things and then you go and just go hard on on investor outreach and just do that in a in a big way either way whenever you decide to do the outreach the way you want to do it is ideally always looking to build relationships but looking to think about who's going to be most interested in this there is no point pitching your B2B enterprise SaaS technology business to a healthcare investor. They're just not going to be interested. So you need to do it highly targeted, highly thoughtful approach and not just spam lists that you might have found on online or, or on LinkedIn. Think about it. If you find that the people are sharing lists of investors on LinkedIn, they've got 10,000 likes to that post. That means 10, at least 10,000 people have downloaded that list and tried to email those investors. Within a week, they'll have had 10,000 emails come into there. They'll have, they'll have ditched that email address and started a new one. Everything's going to spam. Nothing's being looked at because they're on this public list that's got tens of thousands of likes. It makes no sense at all. 
and founders and investing investment uh, advisors who are sharing those types of lists are actually doing a disservice to the to the founders because they're blocking all of these great investors out of the out of the picture so the best thing best thing you can do is use tools like um, crunchbase or linkedin sales navigator to start to find investors with a track record of investing in your space or high net worth individuals c-level executives of large companies in your niche who understand the problem you're solving so for example we've got a startup at the moment that's you created an app for making secure payments over the phone so like you know when you ring up a hotel i had to do it the other day actually i was booking a spa break for my for my wife's birthday and i had to pay over the phone now this app solves that it would it would make that a secure transaction not me just giving my card details to who knows is on the other end making a personal note and ready to go sell that data onto someone you just don't know. So they've solved that problem, but it's not really fintech enough for a fintech investor because it's it's not an, an, managing the transaction. It's just managing that 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 piece of communication. So then it's like, who is going to be most relevant to this? Well, hot industry leaders within hospitality are going to see the benefit in this because that's a big concern of those every day. They're telling their staff to take payment details over the phone and they've got to trust their staff aren't taking down the credit card details and going on a shopping spree that night on Amazon. So they know the problem really well and they've got cash that they could invest in getting this off the ground. The first, you know, you're asking a handful of people for 50 to 100K to back your idea in that first pre-seed round. So you could go to to a hospitality uh, industry leader. You could go, this is a big problem for credit card companies. So you could go to those in the credit card and the insurance industries, all of those types of individuals. So we've built out lists of using these tools, Crunchbase, tin of high net worth individuals, C-level executives in those spaces and create sort of buckets of individuals that might be interested in this. And then you start connecting with those on LinkedIn. You start talking about your your you know, you've seen this problem. I was shocked to realize that it's an X billion dollar problem. I realized that I'd made 22 payments in 12 months over the phone and opened myself out to all of this fraud. Like this must be a problem that you see every day. I've, I've created something that will solve it. Should we have a chat? No pitch deck, no kind of I'm raising X amount. Give me your money. It's you've got, I've got, I've seen a problem. I've, you probably have seen this problem too. If this resonates with you, let's chat. And then you can follow up going, did you get my message? Here's my pitch or, or whatever. But but you can start just by saying, I want a conversation. And then from there, you can start talking about how you're raising investment. Most founders just do a load of LinkedIn connection requests with a copy and pasted message that says, I've just opened my funding round. I'm looking to raise 300K for 10%. Attached is the pitch. Like that's the equivalent of a cold call. If you got a call from someone you've never met before and they just said, hey, I've had a great idea. Do you want to give me 100K? Be like, what the bloody hell is this? And you just put the phone down. Like, this is nonsense. Why would it be any different for a LinkedIn connection request? Someone you've never met asking you for 50 to 100K of your of your kid's inheritance. Why? No, like go away. I'm getting inundated with these 30 or 40 of these connection requests every day just because I have the word investor on my profile. It's not relevant. They don't know what I care about. These these are in industries that don't aren't even relevant to me. Like leave me alone. <laughs> like I'm not going to respond to your connection request that's asking me for money. Build a relationship with these individuals first. Tell them why they might be interested. Pitch the vision 
get them excited. There's a great saying, ask for advice and get money, ask for money and get advice. Go in there with these investors saying, these these high net worth individuals saying, you see this problem, you're highly experienced, I'd love to pick your brains. Like, can I take you for lunch? I'd love to pick your brains on how how we can build this business. You've got so much knowledge to give. And some of them will be flattered that you've asked. And then the, the other thing you can do as well, this is really cool, is if you've got target investors in mind, find out who their portfolio companies are, again, using tools like Crunchbase, and go and connect with the founders on LinkedIn and kind of of those companies that they've invested in in the past and go, look, you're a founder, you're two or three investment rounds ahead of me. We're now getting off the ground. I love what you've been doing with your company. I'd love to, I'd love to buy you lunch sometime and just trade war stories and sort of figure out what I'm letting myself into. Suddenly this founder who's kind of feeling pretty good about themselves, they've gone through two or three rounds of investment, suddenly feels like a hero. They've never been asked or had anyone offer to take them to lunch to, to, to get hold of their knowledge. They're flattered. They're completely overwhelmed by the idea that they've got like a fan who wants to kind of pick their brains about their success. Of course, they're going to say yes to a free lunch in return for, for just having a chat about trading stories because they feel so flattered. And then you can build that relationship with those founders and then hopefully transition that to an introduction to their investors. You just got to be a bit smarter about this stuff rather than just kind of cold calling people and saying, do you want to invest in my business? This is what I don't get, right? This is the biggest deal you are ever going to have done in your life for most founders. Even raising 300K at the, the, the first step. Have you ever sold anything for 300K before? Probably not. Yet you're asking someone to buy your shares. That's the product you're selling. And you're asking them to pay 300K for it. Yet you feel like you should be able to just sort of throw a pitch deck together on, on Canva and email, spam email a load of rich people. And they'll go, oh, it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, here's 300K. This is the biggest sale you've ever made. Imagine if you were trying to sell a 300K product that was unproven in the market. Let's say that your startup, whatever it is, you're saying, whatever it is you're building, the subscription to that is 300K a year. Now imagine that subscription is 300K a year and the effort you'd have to go to to try and find one customer. The amount of meetings, the amount of pitching, the amount of time crafting the message and making sure you had all of the things in place so that the potential customer saw the value in a 300K a year subscription. And think about the effort it would take to make that sale and apply that to fundraising. And you might realize the amount of effort you need to go to to get this deal over the line. And this is part of the reason why just 1% of founders raise investment, right? Because they just watch TV. They see Shark Tank or Dragon's Den. And they see people rocking up going, here's my business. And someone going, yeah, here's 50K. Here's 100K. Here's 150K. They are These people are putting a lot of effort to get to the point of being on those programs and even after those programs they're made for tv and 90 percent of the deals never end up being done because they fall out of due diligence and they don't they, they don't stack up to the original pitch so we get we're kind of i think there's there's some kind of cultural issue here with with the way founders think about funding you read tech crunch and people like that and they're like this these these team this team just went and raised a 40 million pound seed round, like, like our clients. And they're the ones who get the headlines and they're all over sifted and tech crunch. And everyone thinks that that came easy and they can do the same and not realizing they're like the, the 1% of the 1% who raise, 
You know, they're, they're like the tiny little fraction of people that get a crazy deal just because the stars aligned and things just worked in their favor. Everyone else is doing is is putting a load of effort into to get that to to get that three hundred k, let alone that forty million. So there's there's got to be a real real effort from the founder, I think, to to go right. I need to dedicate a lot of time and effort and energy into this because these are long-term partners in my business that are going to be with me for the next five years. That are going to help us develop and grow and give us the capital we need to achieve our vision. Like they deserve as much time, if not more time, than the yeah. product you're building. Like these are the key to success. You need to you need to put the effort in. Given that I need to put the effort in, right? Uh, what what are investors? Uh, looking for so when i present uh, myself uh, as a founder and i am crafting my pitch and we'll talk also about uh, pitching and the pitch deck and everything what are the most important things uh, on average of course every investors you know might might be different but what are the most important things that investors are looking for both uh, in uh, me yeah. as a founder, let's say, and uh, in in the product, in the pitch deck? Mm -hmm. So fundamentally, investors, investors are looking for a founder they can trust with their capital, trust to spend their capital, their money in the right way to deliver a result, to deliver them a return on their investment. That's what they're buying into, the idea that this, this founder or this founding team can deliver them a return on their investment. So that's what you need to get across. Like I said, it's, no, it's not really about the idea. It's about, can this team deliver me a return on investment utilizing and leveraging this idea? So to do that, you need to kind of communicate three things to an investor. First, that they're, that, that you're highly resourceful. You're, you're a highly resourceful entrepreneur. You can get people to buy into your vision. You can attract capital when you need it. You can get investors to want to invest in your business, but you can also get top talent to join your team. You can attract the greatest and the best advisors to join you on your journey. You can you can get game-changing commercial partnerships with people who have got an established audience and could launch you into the market at a click of a button. You've got all of these things. You've got the ability to make that happen. And people say, this is an incredible concept. This is an incredible business. I want to support it. I want to support that founder. I want to support that vision and make it a reality. So you need to be highly resourceful. And the way you the way you show that to an investor is through your pitch, right? Through your pitch, you pitch the vision, you pitch the business, you get them excited. And if they can get excited about the vision that you're setting out there for the future, then they know others can too. Talent, advisors, partners will all be able to come on board. The second thing they're looking for is a founder who understands the financial risks as well as the financial rewards. We kind of briefly touched on it where people are like, I'm going to be a unicorn by Christmas. We've got all of this, you know, we're just focusing on our growth. We're focusing on income. They want someone who understands the, the risks. Like, yes, that can happen, but to grow too quickly is risky and we're going to need a huge amount of capital to make it happen, which is risky to the investor. What are you doing within your business to mitigate financial risk, whether that be growing a bit more slowly to mitigate risk, but then ramping it up at a later date when you've got a bit more validation and traction. So we're not throwing a load of money in and wasting that too early are we making sure that the money we're raising is being spent wisely we're hiring the right people on the right salaries in the right way 
Are we building the product in the right way that we're just building what's needed now to prove the concept? Are we getting carried away and investing loads of money on a full feature set that really isn't needed right now? Are we making sure that we've got enough of a cash buffer in the business to to overcome any kind of challenges that might face? What if my next round of investments delayed by three months? Do you run out of cash or have you built in a cash buffer? Because the last thing you want to do is have to uh, fire and make redundant this team of people you've just built over the last 12 to 18 months because you didn't plan a cash buffer and you've run out of cash in the next round of investments taking two or three months longer than you planned to get the cash through the door. So all of these things are kind of what they're looking for from a finan- uh, from a founder financially, not just the huge growth figures, but how do I manage that capital wisely so that I can make sure the business is is sustainable and, and is gonna is going to still be around in 12 to 18 months time to do its next round of funding and continue on its growth journey. And then the final thing they're looking for is a founder who is who really understands how to create commercial success. So that goes back to the implementation strategy yeah we've got this idea but how do we execute it how do we commercialize this so that it generates revenues and income what valuable assets are we building around this business you know what's going to be valuable to the acquirer is it the revenues is it the ip is it the is it the customer numbers is it the database what are the valuable assets around the business and what valuable assets do i need to build within that business and and what's my strategy for doing so when do i do that what time frame do i do it in what's my stepping stones for the next 12 to 18 months to get to my next strategic milestone? And what's the longer term plan? How do we keep building this business to get it to the point that we can successfully achieve an exit? And who might buy it? Because I'm building this company for two entities. The first entity is the customer I'm selling my product to. The second entity is the organization that's going to come and acquire me at a later date and deliver me and my investors a return for all of our hard work and investment. So you need to make sure you're building something the customers want, but in the background, you're building a business that makes an attractive acquisition opportunity. So once you can kind of piece together that that kind of commercial plan, how we're going to turn this idea into a highly valuable asset, highly valuable business, once you've got that in place, you've, you've ticked off the third thing they're looking for. So when you're highly resourceful, when you understand the financial risks, when you understand how to create commercial success, suddenly you're a no-brainer. Like who wouldn't want to back that individual? I wonder like if... There is a difference in this between investors uh, like in Europe uh, versus investors uh, in the US, right? Uh, like, do they value these elements differently? Although, like, granted, all three are very, very important. Uh, but, like, my impression is, uh, you know, from speaking with uh, investors both in Europe and in the US, uh, is that in the US, there is uh, also, in addition to these, like a sort of X factor, which is like uh, you yourself as a founder, like you as a person, your personal charisma, your personal... That's the highly resourceful piece that I talked about. Like you can get people to buy into your vision that you've got the X factor, they, they get excited. You can get people onboarded in your vision and want, wanting to support you, wanting to make you a success. That, that That's what they're talking about. So yeah, there's absolutely a different a different weighting so european investors tend to come from a banking and finance background they're typically more conservative they like to see numbers and strategy and be reassured before they uh, will invest capital there's a also a very different attitude to failure 
like failure is still seen as a as a as a negative something that 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 you should hide and you should always try and turn a failure into something that looked like a success whereas in the states i think you, there's a different attitude to failure it's kind of like you have a, it's almost like a badge of honor it's kind of like i failed before and i learned so much and now i'm going to succeed this time a lot of the a lot a lot of the investors cuz the ecosystem's more mature a lot of the early stage investors aren't from a finance and banking background they're actually from a from an entrepreneurial background they've exited businesses in the past and they know what it's like and they're they're looking at this as you're an exciting founder the strategy and stuff will come later we back you there's there's what they they're call, kind of calling founder market fit rather than product market fit it's like you know this industry really well. You know this product really well. You know what you're trying to achieve better than anyone. And whether or not it's this version of the product or this version of the business, you're going to figure out a way to make this a success. And that's what they're backing more than anything else. But once it comes to the due diligence, they're still going to want to see the numbers. They're still going to want to make sure that this exciting founder with the X Factor actually has a plan of action as how they're going to spend the money in the best possible way. There's just more of an emphasis on from the first couple of meetings on that. Do you have that, as you say, X factor? Whereas in in Europe and and the UK, it's much more conservative, and there's much more quickly an emphasis shifted onto yeah, the idea sounds great, but tell me about the numbers, tell me about the strategy, tell me about how you're going to build this, tell me about what you've achieved to date, and not necessarily so much getting to know the founder, getting to to know their passion and why they're doing this and 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 that kind of thing. So it's just a slightly different balance in the mind of the investor, but all three of those things still m- remain vitally important. Given that we have the three main criteria that investors are looking for when you know when they make investment decisions, how do I convey those into a pitch deck so i use a framework i've created called the five acts of the perfect pitch and this helps you sort of structure the pitch deck so the first of these acts is the hook and the hook is like is usually the big vision beyond making money kind of what do you stand for what are you trying to achieve now it could be for slightly later stage companies it could be a couple of some key metrics and interesting interesting information like we've already got a million users or we're backed by some big you know, partnership that you've achieved. We had one startup that that was backed by Barclays and, and providing they got the investment and built the product, Barclays had already got, a, they got a written agreement from Barclays Bank that they were going to distribute the product to the to their customers. So these were big hooks to kind of say, to really validate the idea early on. But usually it's your big vision. It's kind of, this is what we stand for beyond making money. Then you sort of move into the second act, which is the essence, which is really unpacking the value proposition. What's the problem you're trying to solve? What's the solution to that problem? And why isn't now a a good time for this to exist? Why is this needed now more than ever? And maybe if it's not already clear, who are my customers? Who am I actually selling this to? Who are the people going to most benefit from this solution? So what's the value proposition? Then you go into the evidence now, the evidence is where we back this concept up. We back this vision and value proposition up to say that we know that this is needed. And we know this is the right solution because we have the research and the evidence to prove it. We've So if you're, if you're pre-launch with your product, this is things like um, surveys, focus groups. You know, you're, you're demonstrating that this is something the market wants, something the market needs. I've got the evidence and the research to prove it, both primary and secondary. 
if it's if you're post-launch, you're ideally able to say, well, this is already in the market. People are already using the product and we're actually growing organically at an, at an alarming rate. Like people love it. We're getting huge. We're getting great recommendations. We're growing month on month because people are recommending what we do. So we're seeing this natural organic growth. So it's either something the market wants, something the market needs, or proof and evidence that you're growing in the market at an exponential rate. So you want to be able to prove that in the evidence. Then you move into the fourth act, which is the plan. And this is where we summarize that kind of core business plan. What are your stepping stones to success? What does your short-term plan look like? How are you commercializing this business? What is it, what's your revenue or commercialization model look like? What's your longer-term plan? How, what are your plans for growing this over the next five years to a point where it can achieve an exit? What's your go-to-market or your marketing strategy? You know, just, just top-level summary. We don't need to go into a huge amount of detail. That's what the business plan's for, but just a top-level summary of these things so investors know at least you've thought about it, at least you've considered these things. And then you have the ask, which is a financial summary. As a result of this plan, here's what the financial performance of the business could look like over the, over the long term, over the next five years. And here's how much investment I need to achieve my first strategic milestones. I, I want to achieve these three objectives, which will allow me to reach this point, which will unlock my next round of funding, or maybe it'll allow me to reach profitability and we can self-invest growth from there, whatever it may be. But I need the money to achieve these three or four things. And as a result, we'll be in this position as a business. And that's the ask. You're, and you're asking for the money and you're saying why you want it. Now, the reason these five acts work and in the order in which I talk about them is because the first two, the hook and the essence, creates an emotional connection with the audience. It speaks to their heart. It kind of tells them, gets them to buy into the vision, gets them excited by the concept. It's very emotional. It's like, this is awesome. This should exist in the world. Why doesn't this already exist in the world? This is, this is incredible. Then the plan and the ask, the final two um, acts, they create a logical connection with the investor. They speaks, it speaks to the investor's head. It tells them that you've, you've, you've kind of got that strategic plan they're looking for. You've got that financial credibility they're looking for. You can be trusted with their money. Not only is this a great idea, but you can be trusted with their money. And the evidence, that third act in the middle, is the link between the two. It kind of transitions the narrative from the emotional part of the pitch into the logical part of the pitch because you're using logic and evidence and social proof to back up the emotional concept that's that's shared in the first two acts so we're starting to transition the mind from an emotional response into a logical one and preparing them to take on that that strategic information you're sharing in the second half of the pitch much more readily so by splitting it out into these five acts we can really start to tell have a really nice story arc a really nice kind of conversation with investors and, and everything just feels like it's in the right place. They, they're on board with the strategy and the vision and, and, and they just feel more relaxed and more open to conversation because it's been delivered in this way. So that's how we do it. That's how you get this across in a handful of slides because they could be five slides. If you really had like a 30 second pitch, you could do five slides and cover just a little something in each one of those five. And people will go, this sounds awesome. We need to chat, chat more. Or you've got a 10 minute pitch and it could be three or four slides per act but you can use this structure to create a really short or a really long presentation and, and it's going to engage people with the information they need on an emotional and logical level to want to let's assume that they engage actually and that you have to pitch so it's estimated that talking in public or giving a speech 
is uh, one of the top fears that people have, uh, even more than the fear of dying. So, uh, which I find quite incredible. And this is like a high stake uh, kind of public speaking, right? Uh, so maybe it's not in front of a crowd, uh, but kind of your life uh, as an entrepreneur and for sure the life of your startup depends on it. So the stakes are very, very high, although maybe it's not a huge uh, audience like going and speaking in front of a TEDx conference, right? So how do you prepare, you know, for a public uh, pitch as a founder, especially maybe someone that can be introverted you know yeah it's difficult isn't it and it's something i used to hate and i'm now doing it all the time and you get so you get used to it you, you absolutely get used to it and it's about finding your message finding your groove finding the thing you're comfortable with talking about so i think the biggest mistake founders make is that they change their script based on feedback they've been given so they're constantly changing their pitch they're constantly changing what they need to say and then they don't get to properly memorize it it doesn't become natural because they're constantly changing things because one investor asked a particular question and they thought oh crap i should put that in my pitch no the pitch the job of the pitch is just to engage that investor in conversation if they're asking you questions it means that the pitch has done its job because they've gone this sounds interesting enough for me to want to ask questions about this and as long as you've got the answers which you should have because it's your business and you've done all the planning you should be able to answer those questions and you shouldn't need a, you shouldn't need a prompt from, from a pitch slide to be able to answer those questions. So we need to keep it the same. We, once we've got that five-act structure in place and we know what we want to say, we keep it the same. It doesn't matter what investors tell us, we keep it the same because the questions are the way you end up in a conversation, the way you build rapport. Conversely, like, like founders think they've done an excellent pitch when they do the presentation and, and, and the investors don't ask any questions at the end, they think I've nailed it. I've given them everything they could possibly want because they haven't asked any questions. What the reality is that they're just like, I have no idea what this is. I don't like the founder. I don't like the concept. I've got no idea what's going on. I'm just going to, uh, I, I, I'm done. I don't know, even know where to start. So I'm not going to even bother asking anything because this ain't going to go anywhere. So you've actually lost them when they don't ask questions. It means you've lost them. So you, you want to keep it short. You want to keep it concise. You want to just keep it the same every time. Let me tell you a story about Martin Luther King that proves this point, right? So Martin Luther King obviously gave the, the, the greatest pitch possibly known to man, the I have a dream speech. That was a pitch to America to make life more equal for minorities. Brilliant pitch, right? He had given that pitch about a thousand times up and down the United States before it was a televised address. Now, he figured that look, everyone I've said I've been doing this speech for years up and down the country and all of these local churches and, and, and community groups. The people who are going to care about me have already heard it before. Like I need something new because I'm going to be talking to them all again on TV. So I'm going to write something new. And he wrote the, the blank check speech. So he wrote a speech about how America had given minorities a blank check, a, a useless check, a check that would bounce. And that was what was sent to the broadcasters to do the commentary on the speech. And he started with the blank check speech and thousands and thousands of people turned up more than they were expecting. And he started the speech and they, they, they all started walking away. And they started walking away because he couldn't deliver it with passion. He was stumbling on his words a little bit. 
And then one of his one of his uh, supporters who used to go around on these on these tours with him and kind of sing to to the crowd beforehand. She was like a soul singer. Shouted, "Tell them about the dream, Martin! Tell them about the dream!" Because she could see everyone getting restless. And he switched to this tried and tested pitch that he'd given thousands and thousands of times. And the rest is history, right? It's the most famous speech, uh, the most famous pitch in history. But he nearly lost it. He nearly lost that moment because he decided to change the pitch. He decided to change the message. So you've got to keep it the same. Keep doing it again and again and again. Practice as much as you can. Go to pitch events and deliver the same pitch again and again and again. Go to any opportunity you can. Go into those investor meetings. Deliver the pitch and get better at it. With every pitch, you'll get better at it and better at it. You'll know what questions to expect so you can better prepare for the answers when you get those questions and you just get more comfortable delivering the content. I've been giving the same pitch now for about, well, when did my book come out? 2020. So I'm telling, I've given giving the same content interviews like this, saying the same message again and again and again for the last three years. It's like going to a, to a, a rock concert, I don't know, Muse or whoever your favorite band is, Taylor Swift, Ed Sheeran, like they are sick of singing their own songs. They have to do it night after night, year after year. Everyone else loves it. They're sick of it. They want to change it. But you don't because you know that's what resonates with your audience. That's what gets results is just the practice of repeating that performance again and again and again and again and not changing it. Yeah. It seems to me that the key to many, many things is actually repetition, right? Repetition and consistency. Yeah. That's it. It works uh, like a, not just in the realm of pitching, but like exercise for example so if you want to get uh, in a good uh, physical shape yes of course you need to do the right type of exercise but you need to put in uh, repetition right so be consistent with it, it. Uh, meditation and visualization mm-hmm. if you do it only once you know but if you keep doing at it uh, slowly, it'll change literally your brain, right? There is a lot of studies that point uh, yeah. into that direction. So it seems to me that repetition is key in many, many areas. And uh, in particular for people, I think, that are still hesitant when it comes to public speaking uh, and putting themselves out there, you know, it's not just about the pitch, but literally like the fear of, you know, uh, talking in public. Uh, I feel like one one very helpful resource uh, is uh, Toastmasters uh, to practice uh, and, you know, even if you have to, to pitch, right? Uh, and to get kind yeah. of over the fear. Yeah, connect with other founders as well and, and create your own pitch events. Like put on a pitch event with 10 founders in your local area that all just pitch their pitch to each other and and then go for drinks after. You know, just just anything you can do to get that practice in. I mean, the one thing that doesn't work is the mirror, right? Because it doesn't simulate the, the real life. No, because it doesn't simulate the, you're fine speaking to yourself in the mirror and you learn the lines. But when you step on stage and you've got people looking at you, you choke and you go, but I, I know what I need to say, but I can't remember it. Suddenly I can't remember it. I've done this a hundred times in the mirror, but it doesn't simulate the, when you step on stage, a different, different emotions happen in your brain, different chemicals are released. You, you get fear, you get anxiety, you get kind of, what if I screwed this up? I'm going to look, I'm going to look an idiot. All of these different hormones and, and, and feelings are being a bit going around in your brain. Your blood pressure rises. 
and it's a completely different experience and that that's why you choke that's why you forget your forget your lines even though you might have rehearsed it a hundred times in the mirror so there's one thing learning what you want to say and practicing it in front of the mirror there's a second phase to go out and just put yourself in uncomfortable positions sign up to pitch events arrange groups of founders together to to pitch to each other just create that scenario where there's there's people there and they're looking at you and experience how you how you get that anxiety before you step on maybe do some breath work maybe do some breathing exercises to try and calm you down have a little pre-pitch routine that you know psych yourself up and kind of tell yourself you're great and and all of those things little things you need to do to just kind of get yourself in that position because like i i do i do zoom presentations like globally in front of hundreds of people every week right almost and i'm, I'm still just me in my office presenting in front of a camera it's, it's it doesn't matter how many people are in that zoom room whether it's one or a hundred the sense is the same the feeling is the same but i if i go and do a talk to say 20 people in a real life environment that feels very different because there's people there who can come up to you afterwards and judge you and and that you're there in public when you step on stage and there's 200 people out there it's even heightened and over time as an entrepreneur you get used to being in these scenarios and you get better and better and better at it and you get more and more confident at it but but in my experience there's there's no secret source to that other than just putting yourself in those uncomfortable positions joining those networking groups that force you to stand up and introduce your business for for 30 seconds before you then sit around a table and have have breakfast mm-hmm you're not going to find an investor there you're probably not going to find a customer there they're absolutely no good to you as a startup founder there are a load of smes accountants and and lawyers and stuff but at least it gives you that experience of standing up and pitching your business for 30 seconds and then having to talk to real people about it and and all of those things just help you develop your message and develop your public speaking yeah absolutely nothing uh, is a substitute to that Uh, i think the mirror as a former ballet dancer uh like we use the mirror to see how our body moves in space because although we can feel it, uh, uh, also see it, uh, help us see, for example, if we are in alignment uh, and therefore our equilibrium is better, our balance is better. So I feel like the mirror can be useful to to see how you move uh, so how you position your body when you speak, mm. uh, how you move in space. Are you using, like if you're on a stage, are you using the stage, the entirety of the stage, or are you staying, you know, put and how you come up, mm. like for more nonverbal communication. But absolutely, I I feel like nothing substitutes. But surely, yeah, as soon as, yeah. as soon as you, as a ballet dancer, you were there in the mirror and you, you, you and... The other ballerinas all felt that you'd absolutely nailed the routine. As soon as you went and took it on stage in front of hundreds of people or in front of a panel of it's judges, it's a very different experience, right? Completely different experience. And it's very easy to just forget what it is you're supposed to do or, 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 or make a mistake. In the same way, like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you can practice something in front of the mirror. You can practice something on Zoom to yourself. Yeah, and then as soon as you press that record button, because you think I'm going to share this on social media, and I'm going as soon as you hit that record button and you go through it again, completely different. You do it, deliver it in a completely different way. Suddenly the nervous giggles come in, and you go the huh, or the ums or the huh, and and all of that stuff because that kind of creeps in just because you hit the record button. Yeah, as soon as you do something that you know is going to capture it forever, 
or it's going to be judged. People are going to remember this in their minds forever. It completely changes the way that you deliver what you're supposed to deliver. So yeah, there's no substitute for just getting out there. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of founders are, are introverted. They're certainly more technical founders. They like to sit behind a desk and code or create stuff. And they're not necessarily excited to go out and be the face of the brand or the sales and marketing rep. And it's a skill they have to learn and a skill they have to get good at. I was definitely one of those founders. I, 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 I loved being behind the desk, making stuff happen. I didn't necessarily like being out there, being the face of the brand, but kind of it has to be done, right? And you have to get good at it if you want to be good in business. So we talk about public uh, speaking and crafting uh, pitch decks. So let's assume now that we got our pitch and uh, voila, investors are interested, right? In our in mm-hmm. our pitch in our startup and they send us uh, the so-called term sheets right so again as a first time founder this is the first uh, time that i see a term sheet what should i what should i know about it uh, and what's uh, mm. what's fair you know so they ask uh, i don't know yeah. for Uh, 10%, right? Is it fair? Is it not fair? Like what is acceptable? The term sheet is, it's a heads of terms. So it's not a legally binding document. It's just an agreement that we're going to move forward into creating the legally binding documents based on these top level terms set out. And that's usually the number of shares, the price of the shares, i.e. the valuation, maybe some key things that they want to have written into the shareholders agreement to protect themselves. So founders can't pay themselves a salary more than X because they don't want you just taking their investment and paying yourself a massive salary. There might be things like that in there. There's things called preferential shares, which you need to be aware of. Probably now's not a great time to go into the detail of those, but they just mean that that investors get preferential treatment on the sale of the company based on their investment. And they might end up walking away with more than their share of the company when an exit happens, depending on how the exit happens. So you just need to be wary of these things. And that's why you need a good lawyer to make sure that that these things aren't aren't being put into the term sheet and you don't realize what they are. That being said, most early stage that we talked about the different stages of funding, when you're talking about pre-seed and seed, you're normally working with individuals. It might be the case that they're asking you to send a term sheet for them to agree to rather than the other way around. Whereas a VC fund would probably have a predetermined term sheet that they've decided. And now you end up in that situation with what's called a lead investor, because you're not necessarily getting 100% of the money from just one investor. You might have three or four investors contributing to the amount you're raising. So let's say you're raising a million. You might have a lead investor putting in 500K, and you might have two follow-on investors putting in 250K. Now, all three of those investors have to end up on this with the same deal terms for it to be one single round of investment. So you have the lead investor negotiate the terms and that will either be you issue them your term sheet and they agree to it or vice versa. But either way, there's a term sheet issued and you agree to the basic terms of the deal. And then the follow on investors just agree with whatever that whatever's being done. So that lead investor tends to do all the due diligence and all the negotiating and all of those things. And then the others follow on. So whoever you're negotiating with is the person that that's the lead investor and they are 
they are in control of, of what happens in the term sheet. In terms of answering your question as to what's reasonable, the figures I talked about earlier are probably the, the industry benchmarks at the moment. So like a pre-seed round, you might expect to sell 20% equity. For a seed round, you might expect to sell about 15%. And for a series A round, you might expect to sell in and around 10%, somewhere between 10 and 15%. That's fairly typical. The average across all three rounds is 15% around. So something like that is is considered reasonable. If you have an investor investing two to 300K in your business and they think that they should own 50% of the business as a result, that would be a big red flag for me, depending on the business and depending on your future strategy. Because let's say most businesses that we're talking about today, high growth scale up businesses need at least three rounds of investment to get to a position where they're either profitable or exitable. If you already, if you sell 50% of the business in the first round, then you become instantly unattractive to investors in the second round because you're what's called over diluted, which means you don't own enough of your company to make it worth your while. Because if I come in on the second round and I say, well, I now want 15%, take it, you basically now own what 35% of the company. And if there's a third round planned and that's between 10 to 15%, you're going to end up maybe with 15% of the company by the end of it, 15 to 20% of the company come the end of it. And you might be sitting there at that point going, well, the, you know, the company's valuable, but I've put in all of this time and effort and I've only got 20% left. What if we need a fourth round of investment? I'm going to end up with 5% of the company. Now that's fine if it's a billion dollar company and you're exiting this for a billion dollars. 5% of that is, is, is a not bad return. I think most founders would want to end up with more than that for their time and their effort and the risk they've taken. So if you sell too much too soon, investors are going to, in the next round, are going to go, well, if we do this deal at what is a reasonable valuation and we take a further 15 to 20% equity, I give it 18 months before that founder goes, I've done this all wrong. I've given away too much of the company. It's not worth my while. I'm just going to ditch this and I'm going to start something else and I'm going to do it right this time. And suddenly the investors lose everything. Because the founder's just gone, screw this, I'm off. Now, they'll hopefully have some things in there. They'll be wanting things in their term sheets to to kind of stop that happening. You might have to give your shares back or something if you were to leave or or something like that. But they don't want to get into that situation. They don't want you to be over diluted. So you need to make sure you're selling a reasonable amount. And equally, it's in the investor's interest to make sure for that reason that they're only asking for a reasonable amount. But you do get some that try and take advantage of inexperienced founders and try and take a huge share of the company for a small amount of equity. And they're kind of doing themselves a disservice in the end. They're being greedy and they probably haven't thought it through. They don't really see the longer longer term picture. They only ever focus on the early stage and they haven't really experienced what happens later on in the process. So yeah, they're, they're the sort of red flags to look out for preference shares and them expecting too much equity are probably two the two big ones but like i say preference shares are sometimes a, a a necessity but don't tend to come into play until you're doing kind of series a series b rounds with large venture capital companies any other red flags that as an investor i should be i should be careful of before signing any agreement with investors yeah i think i mean just do your own due diligence on the investor you don't know who this is, really, only what they've told you. Um, so you like they're doing their due diligence on you to make sure that you you can be trusted with their capital. You want to do your due diligence on them and make sure they're not going to uh, be a train wreck for the business and not going to 
you know not going to be a, a big pain uh, and a thorn in your side that's going to that, that's going to derail the business so i would ask them for references i'd ask them to speak to other founders in their portfolio companies and if they're not willing to give those up then i think that's a red flag and if they are go and speak to those founders try and find covertly who those founders are through maybe crunchbase contact those founders and go we've got a deal we've got a term sheet on the table from investor x I know they've invested in you. What was your experience? And they might go, absolutely fantastic. They've done so much more than bring us cash. They've opened these doors. They've done those doors. We wouldn't have got where we are without them. Or they might say, steer clear. And I've had founders do this, that, that I've advised to go and do, the, do their due diligence. Steer clear of this investor. They're an absolute pain. Every day they're on the phone saying, what are we doing today? What, what, what's progress? And you can't get on with anything because they're constantly wanting updates. And we spend more time updating the investor than we do actually delivering on work. They're an absolute nightmare. And you tend to find that this is someone who stretched themselves to invest in you. It's their first time. Maybe they're, maybe you've got a 500K round. You needed 10 to 20K just to close the round. And you took someone who, and that's the only 20K they've got. They've gambled all their savings on your, so you need to do your due diligence because if it's an investor that's doing that, they're, they're for some reason gambling all their savings on on your one business, they're going to be a nightmare to manage. Whereas it's someone putting 100K into the round who's a multi-million or billionaire, that, that, and that's just one, for them, that's a drop in the ocean. They're probably going to forget about you after six months. And after 18 months, they go, I wonder how that startup's getting on that I invested in. Like, it'd be good to check in with them completely different kind of expectations based on their own personal position and and how much that money is worth to them in their own minds so just doing your due diligence on those investors and the final thing i would say is is while you're doing that due diligence don't be afraid to ask them how liquid they are how quickly they can deposit the cash because i again i've known founders not ask this question they've signed all the legal terms and six months later they're still waiting for the cash to be deposited because the investor promised to invest. They've signed all the legal paperwork and they were planning on investing with capital that they were going to draw out of the sale of a property overseas. Then the market kind of crashed and they weren't able to sell their property. And it was still on the market six months later and they weren't willing to drop the price. And therefore they weren't, they didn't have the cash to invest in the business until that property was sold. So again, checking how liquid they are and kind of just saying, is that cash readily available to transfer right now? Or if they say, well, it's actually caught up in some in some uh, Bitcoin <laughs> and I'm just waiting for the market to recover before I sell it, big red flag. If it's tied up in property, if it's tied up in a pension fund, like just check they can actually get hold of hold of the capital they're saying they're going to invest within a reasonable time frame. James, before we wrap up, uh, given your your experience uh, as a uh, you know in your in your business uh, and uh, all the founders that you have helped over those ten years, uh, you know pitching and getting founded, what are the biggest mistakes that you see founders do? The biggest pitfalls, uh, and how can they? Can those be addressed if we haven't covered those already? Yeah, I mean, I think we've covered so many of them, but maybe this is a good point for a quick summary. But but yeah, biggest pitfall, not raising, trying to raise too much too soon and not, not spreading, spreading it out across multiple rounds. 
believing it's their idea that the investors are investing in and not their own credibility and their own ability to execute. So the the final thing is just not speaking to enough investors, like thinking that you can speak to a handful of, of investors and they're going to see the potential in this and they're going to want to invest. It doesn't matter how good your business is, how good you are as a founder, you're going to need to speak, in my experience, to sort of two to four hundred potential investors to to close any given round. Like if you're if you've not already built solid relationships, because we talked in the beginning, didn't we, about doing the outreach right now and start building that relationship for 12 months time. If you've not been doing that and you're doing that kind of cold call approach of just contacting lots of investors and, and trying to get a meeting, you're going to need to reach out at scale to, to hundreds of, in, of potential investors to get through to close your round. Yeah. If you're building, if you're taking the time to build this right and build those relationships, you don't need to speak to so many, but it takes time. It takes a longer, more, more, more planning and more preparation. So, yeah, they're probably the three biggest things, I think. Yeah, I think so as well. Like, the, James, thank you so much uh, for for this this time together. I think this is a fantastic place to wrap up our conversation. Uh, I really believe that we covered uh, a lot of ground and we gave a lot of uh, advice for both uh first-time founders, but also more more experienced one. So really, I want to thank you. Good. Well, no, you're very welcome. And, and yeah, hopefully, hopefully. And for those who listen, see you next time. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It would be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.